Okay, we're going to pray and get started. God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word and what it tells us of the future. Thank you for the comfort that it brings, for the warning that it gives, and for the, for the scene that it will paint for us today of who you are, how amazing you are, how everything is about you. And I just pray that uh, as I bring this lesson today that you would give me the words that you would help me to do justice, at least a little bit, to what your word says, and that we would love you more as a result of being here today. We give this to you and we pray it all in your name. Amen. So uh, just heads up, ladies, I am like a hot mess with this lesson. I have been looking forward to this lesson for forever, and I am passionate about it, and I get a little emotional about it because it is just so good. So just, there's your, there's your warning. Oh my goodness, what's going on with the mic here? Hopefully we're good. Okay. We are finally getting to the book of Revelation. Prime Minister Winston Churchill once described the Soviet Union as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And many, I think, regard the book of Revelation in kind of the same way. It's kind of confusing seems to be a lot of bizarre symbolism and some baffling descriptions going on in there. And I freely admit that this book can certainly be intimidating. And I am never going to pretend that I understand everything there is to understand about it. I do not. You will often hear me say as we go through this book, I don't know. But that's okay. And I think it's a shame that this reputation of it, you know, it's being confusing and this mystery and it's a riddle. I don't get it that it often stops believers from reading it, from knowing it, from studying it. So I want to start off quickly just to kind of give you a list that's in your notes about why it is important for us to know and to study the book of Revelation. And this is certainly not a complete list, um, but it's certainly reason enough why we should give it our time and effort. Number one, it is in the Bible. Reason enough. Maybe I'll try to move this out from my... Maybe I'm bumping this. I don't know. It's in the Bible. So that's all the reason we really need to know the book of Revelation. Second, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the very first five words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're reading something and the first words are the revelation of Jesus Christ, don't you want to know what it says? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. How could you not want to read the rest? Jesus has come to John and he says, John, I am about to reveal something to you. I am about to make what was unknown known. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus Christ. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you will at least know that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is coming for his church to take us home, that he is going to return to this earth to take care of his enemies, that he is going to reign over all the earth as the eternal king, and that he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Why would you not want to read about that? Another reason that we should know Revelation is that it is a reliable, of course, because it's in the Bible, it is a reliable and it is the most detailed description of what is yet to happen in the future. Of course, there are other parts of the Bible that describe the future, that give us information about that, but Revelation gives us by far the most information about what is going to happen in the future. And in those descriptions of the future, we see that it gives believers hope for the future. Like I said, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. God is going, Jesus is going to reign on the earth. It gives us hope in sometimes what feels like a hopeless world. It gives unbelievers warnings for the future because I'm sure, as you know, Revelation is not all sunshine and roses. There's some very hard things in there to warn those who don't know Jesus. And third, it should hopefully give believers motivation 
to warn unbelievers about the future. Because not only does it give us hope, but it should also give us a heart for the lost to see what they are going to have to endure if they don't know Jesus. And that hopefully it gives us motivation to warn them. And we'll also see that Revelation contains seven promises of eternal blessing. And I've listed them there for you. If you didn't get a sheet uh, last week, I've put it out there again. But there's an article that I have about the significance of the number seven. Hopefully you've had a chance to kind of read through that. We'll see the, the number seven a lot, especially in the book of Revelation. It's... Um, Some people call it the number of God. It is a number that God uses often to signify completion or perfection, that everything has been done. Um, So we have these seven blessings in Revelation. And while some of those blessings are in regard to the future, some of those can apply even to us today. For example, the very first blessing in the book is Revelation 1-3 that says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's a blessing that can apply to us today. And of course, we're blessed if we obey and believe all of God's word. But Revelation is the only book with this specific promise. It's the only book in all the Bible that specifically says, if you read it, if you hear it, if you obey it, if you believe it, you will be blessed. And I think part of the reason for that is that when you start getting into it, it sort of reads like a sci-fi novel at times. It gets pretty funky. It gets pretty weird. And I think it would cause many to, it does cause many to roll their eyes and say, oh, come on, you're a fool if you believe Revelation. Are you kidding me? Seriously? That's nonsense. That stuff's never going to happen. And so I think this is part of the reason why God promises to bless those who believe him in this book because it can seem kind of unbelievable at times. And then our fifth reason is that last words are often very profound and significant. Y'all never forget um, the evening that I drove up to Sioux City. My dad was in the hospital. He was fighting cancer. We knew that his time was short Uh, We knew the time would come when he really wouldn't even be coherent enough to to know what was going on or to have conversation. And I remember just taking an evening because I knew mom wouldn't be there because she was always there. (laughs) But I knew she would be home by then and I could leave my boys at home with my husband because they were little. And I wanted to go up there to say to him what I wanted to say. Because I just didn't want anything left unsaid. And I rehearsed it in my mind as I went as I drove up to Sioux City, like this, and it still felt inadequate, like this is what I want my dad to know. Before I have to say, is this me? I suppose I could take this. Sorry, I don't usually go sleeveless. I'm not really, I guess I'll do this. We're all ladies in here, I guess. Maybe that'll help with not bumping that. Um, you know, it's just what I wanted him to know. Last words are important. And Revelation is kind of like that. Revelation is God's final word to us. Jesus appears to John in all of his glory. We see in chapter 1, he appears with eyes of fire and hair as white as wool. And his feet are like bronze from a furnace. And he appears to John in all his glory. And he says, here is my last revelation to you before I say goodbye. Not goodbye in the sense that he would never see John John again. Do we have a different chord? Okay. Well, hopefully we'll just just pray for it. That's not a joke. God answers prayers, right? So we can pray for that. Um, You think back here? You can give it a shot. That's not going to (laughs) happen, especially not today. Um, So Jesus is not saying goodbye, obviously, for forever, but this is the last of God's revelation. This is the last he's going to reveal to have someone write it down, to give it to the church, to give it to Jesus' followers through the ages, 
So Jesus comes and says, here's what I want you to know before you put that back cover on your Bible. These are my last words. And so it is imperative that believers pay attention and give heed to what Jesus has to tell us in Revelation. So we're going to start in chapter 4. It's not because the rest is not important. If you've got your outline of the book of Revelation, um, the, chapter 1 kind of talks about the past. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about John's present anyway. Um, John was to write some letters to churches that existed at that time, so that was present for him. And chapter 4 really is where we start the future. And for our purposes, and because we have a limited number of weeks, this is where we're going to start. If you have your Revealing Revelation book, uh, you can get some insight on those first three chapters of Revelation from there, because we're not skipping them because they're not good. They're great. But um, we're just going to head for chapter 4. So Revelation chapter 4. John writing, After this I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and from the throne were, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy! is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay, before we dig into that, I'm going to get on my soapbox just a little bit here. And I just want to briefly talk about the claims that some people make, modern day claims that some people make, that they have been to heaven. And they're going to now report about it. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to put God in a box. And if it would serve his purposes, I am not saying that he could never give anyone in our modern day age a vision of heaven or some kind of experience of heaven. But I would tell you to use extreme caution when regarding those accounts. And as my general rule of thumb, I would say don't waste your time, don't buy the book, don't buy the book for me as a gift because it's going to end up in my garbage. I'm just telling you. Because that's personally where I would put it. And let me tell you why. I've got five reasons there on your handout. First of all, these alleged accounts of people going to heaven and telling us what it was like, they are impossible to verify. There is no way to prove if this experience was from God, if it was a vivid dream, if this person might be lying through their teeth in order to promote a personal agenda. They could have maybe had some kind of experience, but it could be some misperception. It could be an exaggeration. It could honestly be a demonic imitation because we know that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And should it serve his purposes, he could certainly make somebody think that they'd been to heaven. It could be someone who is just outright trying to deceive. 
Second of all, these experiences often don't line up with sound biblical doctrine. Ladies, God will never contradict himself. And any alleged heavenly experience had better line up with God's word with 100% accuracy. And if it doesn't, throw it in the garbage. Because it's not legit. Third, often these experiences fail to line up with biblical accounts of heaven. Ladies, every time we see someone in God's word who is taken to heaven or has a vision of heaven, it is always about the glory of God. It is always about how amazing heaven is and the glory that surrounds God. And and you can see that they are just grasping for words to try to describe the indescribable of what they are seeing. And if you see on your handouts that colored one, I just made a quick comparison for you. Of There was Daniel and there was Isaiah and there was Ezekiel. And I even included Moses because Moses never went to heaven, but he has some pretty close encounters with God. And there are some certain features that went along with that. And you can see, even though they may have described details a little differently or focused on different things, there are consistencies. I really can't move, can I? There are consistencies. I mean, never once do any of these guys who went to heaven say, you know, I took this stroll down the street of gold and all of a sudden I'm talking to this lady And I discovered that she was my sister that my mom had miscarried before I was even born. It was amazing. And yet, this is often what we find in our modern day accounts of when people say they've gone to heaven. Fourth, those who genuinely experience heaven, like Paul and Daniel and John, Ezekiel, Isaiah, They were often reluctant even to speak of their experience. And sometimes they were even instructed to withhold certain information. We know that John and Daniel were told not to reveal things, even though they were given extensive visions of heaven. Paul himself too, and he doesn't even name himself. It's almost like he doesn't want to say, it was me. He says, I know a guy, but it was him. I know a guy who 14 years ago was caught up into heaven. He seems kind of reluctant to talk about this. He says, whether in body or out of body, I don't know. I know this man was caught up in paradise. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul was told, don't write it down. And honestly, I find it very odd that God would instruct men like Paul and Daniel and John to withhold certain information about heaven to only then, 2,000 plus years later, seemingly give even greater visions of heaven to people who are like five years old, along with permission to give full disclosure about what happened there. And by the way, if you happen to reap some financial benefit from that experience, well then, good for you! I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying it. And my fourth line, my fourth, fifth reason, I should say, fifth reason, kind of a bottom line for me, is if God wanted us to have more information about heaven, it would be in the Bible. We would have the book of Lazarus. I mean, if we wanted to know about heaven, wouldn't he be the guy to talk to? He spent four days there. And I'm not saying he didn't talk to the people around him about it. If he remembered and if he was allowed to speak of it but yet in god's word there's not a hint not a whisper of what those missing four days were like for him ladies when we seek sources outside of the bible in order to get information about heaven what we're really saying is that the bible is insufficient and it hasn't given me all that i want to know and you are skating on thin ice when you elevate someone's personal experience to the level of scripture That is not how you develop your theology, your beliefs about God and your beliefs about heaven. You get it from God's word. Okay, I'll get off my my soapbox. Revelation 4. We see when John is taken up into heaven here that there are some pretty amazing funky things going on in this opening scene. And many times we can get really caught up in all these questions like, 
Who are these creatures? Who are these elders? What is the seven spirits of God? Why are the elders wearing crowns? Why do the creatures have different faces? And, you know, it is certainly fine to ask those questions. Um, That's good to do. But we also want to be careful that we don't allow all the details, especially in Revelation, because we don't always know exactly what all those details mean. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Don't let the details get you so bogged down that you miss the point that you miss the whole point of the passage, that you let those things overshadow the star of the show. Because what immediately captures John's attention far beyond all those other amazing things that he is seeing in the throne room of God, what captures his attention is the throne. Because in the 11 verses in chapter 4, John mentions the throne of God 13 times. And we'll see in Revelation that repetition is often one of the primary ways that John uses to emphasize important truths. And from John's eyewitness account, we're going to learn several important truths about the throne of God and about the one who is on it. God's heavenly throne is number one, occupied. It's occupied. That is where the king of the universe resides. That is where the one who orchestrates all of the events of the universe sits. This is the one who issues forth the coming judgments that we'll see in Revelation. This is the creator. This is the eternal one. This is God Almighty rightly seated on his throne of the cosmos. It's occupied. Second, we see it is eternally immovable. In verse 2, it says there's a, that a throne stood in heaven, or might say standing in heaven, That word could be translated, it means established from eternity, permanent, immovable. The rulers of our earth and their positions of power come and go all the time, not so in heaven. It is eternally immovable. Third, the throne is indescribably beautiful. John does his best to use these earthly objects to try to explain what the throne looks like. And the characteristics of the throne are almost mixed in with the characteristics of the one who is seated upon it. God is described as having the appearance of jasper, which was crystal clear, diamond-like appearance. He talks about carnelian or sardis, which was a ruby-colored stone. He talks about a rainbow that looks like an emerald in appearance. He talks about a sea of glass like crystal we're going to see in revelation that john frequently uses the word like because he's constantly grasping at the scriptures in a futile attempt to try to do justice to heaven but our limited human language simply cannot describe the indescribable god he is he john sees him in this brilliant prismatic jewel-toned splendor And these glorious colors and wonders of heaven are so far beyond what any human eye could ever see or what any person could ever imagine. And the God who rules there is far more beautiful than any mortal mind could ever comprehend. Just as it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. We also see, number four, that the throne is completely surrounded. The one who sits on the throne is indisputably the center of everything. The the throne is surrounded by 24 lesser thrones, and on those thrones are 24 elders. Who are these elders? There's lots of opinions. Some say they're angels. Some say they represent Israel, the Jewish people, as 12 of them are the tribes and 12 of them are the apostles. Some say they represent the Old Testament saints. Some say these elders are the church. Um, The Bible doesn't really tell us if push came to shove, I would go with the church because an elder was a position in the church. Um, Because the crowns, we don't have time to go into it because the crowns and the robes makes me think Along that lines, we also know that the rapture happens just before all this is hap- this takes place in heaven. So that's when the church is going to be in heaven. So I think they might be represented by these elders. Um, but the Bible doesn't explicitly say, so I'm content not totally knowing until I get to heaven, because like I said, God's the star of the show anyway. We see four living creatures, and though 
Um, their descriptions vary. You'll see also on that handout that other men saw these guys. Ezekiel has seen them. Isaiah has seen them. Um, they're somewhat described in the same way. I'm sure these are jaw-dropping creatures. Uh, obviously, there's some type of angel. But at the end of the day, they are still just creatures. God made these beings, and he made them to serve and worship him. We also see, number five, that this throne is matchlessly powerful. It, we see there's flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder and burning torches of fire. We see the seven spirits of God, which is kind of an odd description. Um, the most scholars believe that that's representative of the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's not seven Holy Spirits. But again, that number seven could be talking about the completeness of God, the fullness of God. This is the Trinity on display. The Father's on the throne. The Holy Spirit is here represented in this seven spirits. And we're going to see the Son coming in the next chapter. And we also see that the throne is reverently holy. You know, if I had to choose only one single word to describe the otherness of God, it would be holy. And we see that these beings cry out the exact same words that the angels said when Isaiah witnessed them in the throne room hundreds of years earlier. Holy, holy, holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be separate, to be different, to be unlike. And as it relates to God, it means to be highly exalted. I really, if you want another book on Revelation, I highly recommend this one. It's Jeff Kinney's World... Um, God's grand finale, wrath, grace, and glory in earth's last days. Um, he, he, uh, this is a book that goes through Revelation as well, kind of like the one that we've got for the, our class. And I really liked his description of the holiness of God in here. He says, To declare God as holy means he is incomparable, unequaled, and unlike any human angel or created being. It speaks of his transcendence transcendence or the fact that he's so inexpressibly above us as to be incomprehensible theologians sometimes refer to god as being wholly other in other words his essence exists on a plane far above human comprehension or experience trying to wrap your mind around this truth would be like trying to capture the entire universe in one photograph it simply can't be done it's like trying to fit the pacific ocean into a thimble Holiness is the sum total of all God's attributes. His grace is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. His sovereignty is holy. His righteousness is holy. He is holy. This concept is largely foreign to the average Christian today. But when contemplated, it leads us to the one grand conclusion. This God who is seated on heaven's throne is not like us. Not at all. Reverently holy. And there is only one proper response to the holiness of God, and that is worship. And we see that's exactly what the elders and the creatures do. They fall down before the one who is seated on the throne. They cast their crowns before him. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do, we, how do we really know that this event happens in the future? Because couldn't this kind of describe any day in heaven? But we're going to see now in chapter 5 that clearly this is a heavenly scene that is yet to come. Because something very specific is going to happen here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, so that's God the Father, I saw in the right hand of him seated on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, Sealed up with seven seals. Now, in ancient Rome, it was customary to seal up important legal documents, things like wills or ownership documents. And obviously, if there is a scroll in the hand of God, the scroll is immensely important. So, what is it? Probably the best description of it is it's the title deed to earth, which kind of begs the question who rightly owns the earth? Does Satan? I mean, after all, he offered the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. And you can't legitimately offer what is not yours to give. Does the earth belong to the Antichrist? In this time, will it have been passed to him from Satan? 
because Satan was the legitimate owner and now he's given it to this man? Does it belong to God, who obviously originally owned the earth, but he granted co-regency to Adam and, and he forfeited it through sin? Does the earth belong to Jesus? Is he now finally going to reclaim that right for himself? It is of utmost importance. It is absolutely essential that we find out who has the right to the scroll. Because whoever is worthy of the scroll is the one who owns the earth. And that is the one to whom the entire universe owes its worship. So the mighty angel asks the question that is on everyone's mind. Verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And break its seals. And we see the search ensues. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. The search is to no avail. And there is nothing more devastating to John than for him to think that there is no one worthy Verse 4 says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, we might think this seems like a bit of an overreaction on the part of John, but John understands the ramifications of no one being found worthy. Essentially, this scroll will unveil the culmination of redemption story and the reconciliation of all things to God. And if no one can open it, then God's plan to redeem and restore his creation that has been devastated by sin for millennia can't come to pass. And remember, ladies, John, at this point, he is the last man standing. He's the last apostle left alive. He has watched his closest friends be violently murdered for the sake of the gospel. He has watched believers, people that he has shepherded, be scattered by persecution and endure horrific suffering. John himself was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. God miraculously spared his life, but now he is sentenced to slave labor in the mines on the island of Patmos. And I'm sure at this moment, John felt the way I feel at times. And the way I'm sure that you feel at times. That our world is such a train wreck. That everything is so shattered. Creation is so broken. The world is so broken. People are so broken. I am so broken. Because I can never, no matter how hard I try, conquer my sin. Don't you sometimes just feel like Paul where he writes, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this body of death? Should we just forget about the recording? I don't know what I can do about my hair. Okay, let's see what we can do here. Maybe I'll pull this forward. Okay, we'll give that a shot. I mean, I only use this to record, so maybe we'll have to give that up. Who will free me from this body of death? Whom will free me from this world of sin? Again, I really liked um, Kenny's description in here. He's writing about just how our world has changed. It feels like it's changed so much, hasn't it? Just even in the last five, ten years. He writes, We are through the looking glass now. We are living in a surreal state. Laws now require the recognition of evil, protecting the depraved and deviant. Love is defined as whatever you feel or want it to be. Truth is a personal construct, not an absolute objective measure. God is no longer the creator, if he even exists at all. All religions lead to heaven if there is such a place. Mankind exists for the pleasure and sustainability of the planet. We must now serve Mother Nature and bow to the fictitious god of climate change. Feelings overrule facts. What was once profane is now sacred. Evil is good. Good is evil. Self is God. 
Religious attendance is at its lowest in nearly 100 years. The number of Americans identifying as something other than heterosexual has doubled since 2012. Men can now magically become women simply by imagining they are, even claiming to be able to have babies. One can jump back and forth between genders depending on how they feel. Children and teenagers now imagine themselves to be animals, becoming furries and being applauded by their peers and others at their schools. We are living in a strange moment, a time of perilous change in which we're witnessing the emergence of a dark new age. And there's every indication the times will grow darker. So we ask, why? And is there any hope? Your brother John felt that despair too, to the point of tears. His soul was in anguish, even in heaven. And to think it all comes down to one little scroll, a document representing the title deed to planet Earth and the future of everything there is. So now perhaps we can empathize more fully with why the elderly apostle was weeping so bitterly. John weeps. Because this is not how the story is supposed to end. What he didn't realize yet is that the search that was conducted was not because those in heaven didn't know who could take the scroll. The point of the search was to demonstrate that there is only one in all of creation who is worthy to take the scroll. One of the elders issues, I love this verse. It is one of my very favorite verses in all the word of God. I love this verse. One of the greatest statements. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we expect an Aslan moment, straight out of Narnia, right? You would expect almost for John to turn at these words and see up on this precipice overlooking the throne room of God, there is a lion And yet he is a man, and yet he is God. And his mane is rippling in the heavenly breeze. And he has glorious blinding light rays radiating all around him. And he unleashes a roar that is so full of power and so full of glory and so full of majesty that it reverberates throughout the heavens and it makes the ground Tremble and quake. And all who are worshiping around the throne have no choice but to fall on their knees in reverence and awe and wonder in the presence of the One. And with a mighty single leap, the Lion of Judah suddenly stands before the throne of the Father and He takes the scroll and He ushers in the plan of redemption. Sounds like a good scene, doesn't it? And yet this is not what John sees. He's just this person, this God, this being has just been introduced as the Lion of Judah. And yet we see in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb. The most gentle and helpless of creatures. And this is not just any lamb. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And that word there could be literally translated butchered. It's hard for me to get through that verse just for the sake of the verse, 
But I also remember every time my dad taught this verse, he couldn't get through it either. This is the one? This butchered lamb is the worthy one? Of course he is. Of course he is. By the very fact that he was slain makes him the worthy one. We see that this lamb has other unique qualities. We see he has he is described as having seven horns, which again that's a number for completion or perfection, and horns show power, even though this lamb has been slain, he has total power. It says he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out throughout the earth. So again, somehow, some way, these are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Because the Trinity is here, the three in one. The elder describes the lamb as having overcome. In verse 4 or 5, he says, the lamb has conquered. Some versions say overcome. What has this lamb overcome? It doesn't say in this passage, but we know from God's word. It's in your notes. He has overcome the world. And these are just a few of the verses where you could find these in other places. He has overcome sin. He has overcome death. He has overcome the forces of hell. You know, we see in the Bible that God manifests, Jesus manifests himself in different ways at different times. In chapter 1, he looked very different. He was the glorified Christ. But now he's this butchered lamb. Why would he manifest himself in this way at this time? When it seems like the, the Lion of Judah persona, if I can call it that, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, But the lion seems more fitting for this occasion, doesn't it? Why is he showing himself as a butchered lamb? The Bible doesn't say, so this is honestly just my personal speculation, but we're going to see that when the scroll is opened, that it unleashes the worst time in all of human history. It's going to be complete devastation, absolute carnage, suffering on a scale that we have never seen or even imagined. And as we get into Revelation and we start reading of all these horrors, it might be easy to think, like, God, dude, chill out, bro. You're kind of taking this a bit too far, aren't you? I mean, does it really have to be this bad? You're kind of going off the deep end here a little bit, God. This, this is pretty bad. Does it have to be this bad? And we can almost picture this Zeus-like God who is just kind of lost in this fit of rage throwing his thunderbolts in uncontrolled fury at the world. But of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. Everything that God does or allows always has purpose and plan and precision, and he has great patience. Unless anyone should read Revelation and get into the bad parts of it and think God is just going kind of too far here, first we are shown the slain lamb. As a poignant reminder that none of the people on the earth who are suffering the wrath of God during the tribulation, they didn't have to be there. They didn't have to go through it. Jesus was slain. Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus was butchered in our place. He endured the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, and yet the majority of mankind continually refuses that offer. And we're going to see, even in the tribulation, God keeps making the offer and making the offer and making the offer, and they keep saying, no thanks. So the slain lamb takes the scroll, he's going to break the seals, he's going to usher in God's final judgment on the earth, and he has every right to do so, because he willingly bore the wrath of sin to give everyone who would simply trust in him a way to escape it. The lamb is worthy. But the lion is coming. Verse 4, and he, or 7, sorry, verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The slain lamb reaches towards the one who sits on the throne. And he takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and all of those in heaven lose their minds in a good way. 
I mean, have you ever had one of those moments, ladies, or a few moments where you have been so excited, you have been so ecstatic, you have been so exuberant that you can't even contain yourself? That if you could, you would just jump out of your skin? I mean, it's just the hand I've been dealt, but I think football. Because that's my, you know, testosterone-filled family. And there's a lot of moments I've had like that watching football games. And I thought this last season, uh, it was a great game. There seemed to be nobody could do defense, so every team was scoring every time they had the ball. And we were winning 49-42, to and there's 90 seconds left, but the other team has the ball, and we haven't been able to stop them just like they haven't been able to stop us. And so they're driving, and they're having a good drive, and the quarterback steps back and, you know, launches a pass to, to try to get that touchdown that they need to tie the game, and it's intercepted by my son. <laughs> and it's his first interception ever. And I am up on my feet, and I'm screaming, I'm, yeah! This is a lot less embarrassing when I'm in a bleacher full of people. It's like, yes, yeah, and you're high-fiving people. You don't know who they are. You know what, you can't, Roxy, Ron, I know you know what I'm talking about, my friend. Roxy's son caught a touchdown pass for the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And I was watching that game on ESPN, and I was losing my mind in my living room. Like, did he say Gabe Ron? Did he say Gabe Ron? We're screaming, yelling, your phone must have been blowing up. I bet. Those mo- have you had moments like that? It doesn't have to be football but moments where you can hardly contain yourself. Well, if you've had a feeling like that, you need to multiply it by about a million times, and that is the feeling we're going to have in this moment when the Lamb takes the scroll. And we're going to be there to see it. Finally, after millennia, of waiting for God to wipe out sin and to make all things new and right. It's here. And we'll see that the creatures and the elders and the angels and the saints throughout the ages in heaven, that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea can no longer contain themselves. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Ladies, read your Bibles that way. When it says a loud voice, use a loud voice. When it's something glorious, read it in a glorious way. These aren't just words on a page. Our last blanks there, Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship. And there are so many reasons. And I listed just a few because these are the ones that are found in Revelations 4 and 5. We worship him simply because of his character, who he is. He is holy, holy, holy. He is to be worshipped because the slain lamb of God endured the wrath of the Father against sin so that we could escape it. He is worthy to be worshipped because he is the only one worthy to open the scroll to usher in God's plan to redeem his fallen creation. He is worthy to be worshipped because somehow, some way, even though Jesus is just beautiful beyond description, somehow, some way, he will yet forever bear the physical scars of the cross. 
And he's not doing that because he can't get rid of them. Of course he can. But he will bear those scars as an eternal reminder to us of how much he loves us, of how far he was willing to go, of how much he was willing to sacrifice so that we could be saved. He is worthy to be worshipped because he ransomed repentant sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He is worthy to be worshipped because he will ensure that his saints will rule and reign with him in his kingdom. Ladies, number two there, worship is about God, not us. In our sin nature, we have this tendency to make pretty much all of life about ourselves. And yet when John is there in heaven, and despite all the amazing things that are going on in heaven, the throne and the one who is upon it is instantly the center of John's focused attention. Even in heaven where everything is beautiful and perfect, nothing will compare to the one who is on the throne, and nothing will compare to the Lamb. So how much more should the passing, temporary, insignificant, even sinful things of this world that so easily become the center of our attention not compare to the one who is on the throne and not compare to the Lamb? Third, uh, third, worship is motivated by truth, not emotion. You know, ladies, God never bypasses our hearts. Or God never bypasses our minds to get to our hearts. God will always first engage our thinking so that we know the truth, we understand the truth, we understand who God is. And when we understand the truth in our thinking, then our emotions should follow in a proper response to the truth. And that is when worship is genuine. And ladies, please listen... Um, Please hear what I'm going to say here. As I talk about worship and emotion, and I'm kind of talking about corporate worship right now, because all of life is worship. But when I think of being with brothers and sisters in Christ and corporately worshiping together, often through singing, um, emotion is not automatically a sign of true worship. And on the same hand, lack of emotion is not a sign of is not necessarily a sign of insincere worship. Okay. There are many factors that are involved in how we express ourselves in corporate worship. How we've been raised, what kind of music we like, what our background is, what our cultures are. There are also phases in life where it's really hard to engage fully in worship. You know, I remember those days where I was too busy giving the evil eye to a little boy next to me in the row because he's misbehaving. It's really hard to engage in worship when you're stressed just getting there. I remember when my boys were little, that hour before getting to church on Sunday mornings was by far the most unholy hour of my entire week. Get in the car, we're going to church. You're going to be late. I mean, that's how it feels. And then you're supposed to come and worship. It doesn't always work real great. There's also times that we have of hardship and trial. There are times when we struggle with doubt. There are times when we're wrestling with God. There's times when we're just struggling in life. You know, I thought again to that time when I knew that dad was dying and I would stand there in church pretty much like a statue because I knew if I opened my mouth to sing, I would not make it. And I knew even if I engaged my brain in some of the words, I probably wouldn't make it. And not that I minded crying in church, but I had very little boys at the time and I didn't want them being upset and worried why is mom there crying. So I stood there probably looking like a really grumpy statue. And anybody not knowing me might think, wow, what a grump. Does she even know the Lord? She's not even singing. Why isn't she worshiping? Because we do have those thoughts, don't we? We don't intend to, but we do. You know, I kind of, um, times, at times when I'm up at the front of the stage singing, um, for me, I like that, not because I necessarily want a microphone or that I'm the best singer or that I want people paying attention, but I've noticed that I think more about what I'm saying. Because, first of all, I want to get it right. You know, I'm singing. I don't want to mess up the words. But I think about it more. And when I think about it more, my emotions respond. And I think everyone should be required at least once to be up on the stage. 
I just think it would be helpful. You know, and there's sometimes when I look out and I almost want to laugh. And again, I am not picking on anybody. Like, you're all going to be paranoid. Like, next time Christy's up on the stage, I better look like I'm worshiping. I'm not saying that. But there's times when we sing songs like, you know that one, that, there's joy in the house of the Lord. You know that one? And people are like, there's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of, again, I'm not picking, I'm just talking about the general feel. Like, I'm not picking on any specific person. I promise you. Because I am guilty as charged. Like, I can be there singing on a Sunday at my seat, and all of a sudden I realize I'm making a grocery list in my head, and I'm not even thinking about the words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm not telling you that you need to raise your hands, that you need to fall on your knees, that you need to get out your tambourine. Or your worship ribbon, though, Hallie, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. But, you know, sometimes I think, people, can you crack a smile? Are you thinking about the words that are coming out of your mouth? And I get it. Like, maybe you don't feel good or you have little kids. There's other factors, okay? I'm I'm not, please don't think I'm pointing a finger. But all I'm trying to say here is that I want to challenge you. And it's not... Like I said, all of life is worship. But I just want to challenge you. Um, and I do, I don't know, some, there's just something about Lamar's Bible. I love Lamar's Bible Church. And I've been to different cultures. And I've worshipped in so many different ways. And sometimes I just wish we felt more free to let our emotion go with our worship. And maybe it starts with us, ladies. Maybe we just need to close our eyes and not worry about what we think other people are thinking. Because they might not be thinking that at all. I mean, when I see someone with eyes closed or sometimes silent tears or sometimes hands up, I, I, it blesses me. And again, that can be a show. Okay, only God knows the heart. But it motivates me to maybe feel a little more free to worship in that way too. So all I'm telling you, and we all have different styles, we all have different preferences. I'm not saying we all have to look the same. God made us unique. All I want to challenge you with today when it comes to worship, engage your mind. Think about the words. And then if an emotional response wells up within you, then do it for God. Do it for the audience of one. Worship for him. And not worrying about what other people might think. Because I guarantee you, ladies, and this is like our last link here, um, Worship is not a spectator sport. And I guarantee you that in heaven, there is going to be no back row of bored, sleepy, distracted, self-absorbed worshipers. Everyone in heaven will wholeheartedly participate. They will be fully engaged. They will be caught up in the wonder of it all. And I guarantee you that all of us in heaven will undoubtedly, it will involve overwhelming emotion. I mean, my dad would have never moved a muscle while we're singing songs. He was raised strict Mennonite. But I guarantee you that's not how he's worshiping now. It is involving emotion. And Revelation chapter 5 paints this beautiful picture of this group of varied be- of beings that are so varied. There's elders. There's the four living creatures. There's angels. There's humans. And all of the differences that could separate us here on earth All of those differences will be forever set aside as we together, as sisters in Christ, worship with one accord. Aren't you so looking forward to that? No more distractions. No more making grocery lists in our heads. No more trying to corral unruly kids. No more looking at our watches wondering how long the song is going to take. No more being critical of the tempo that it's going at. No more wishing that the drums weren't so loud. No more worries and burdens and stresses and hardships to weigh down our hearts. No more looking around at other people and maybe subconsciously judging them for the way they're expressing themselves. No more looking around at others and wondering what they may or may not be thinking about me as I try to express my worship. Because every eye will be laser focused on the throne. And every mind will be fully consumed with the worthiness of the Lamb. And every heart will be perfectly pure and sincere as together we will lift our voices to the audience of one. And by the way, we will all be musically talented. There you go, my friend. 
I was actually going to have us try to do that together with a song, um, but we don't have time. One of my absolute favorite songs, and in case, and we do sometimes sing it here, and we, there is a song kind of coming from Revelation in uh, second service, so maybe you can think about this scene as you sing that today. I also love the song, Is He Worthy, by Chris Tomlin. It comes right out of Revelation 4 and 5. And I was playing that for myself several times this week, on my knees, tears falling down my face, so looking forward to the day when we will worship God perfectly and see him with our own eyes. Next week is Revelation, or no, sorry, no Sunday school next week because we have the annual women's committee meeting. And I want to encourage you, obviously, all to be on a committee. So be on a committee. Go to that. Um, so no Sunday school next week. So two weeks. We'll be talking Revelation 6 and 7. Sealed judgments. Sealed servants. God, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you that you are on your throne. Thank you that the Lamb is worthy. Thank you for little things like Jill figuring out that my hair was messing up the microphone. So that would not be a distraction. God, we just thank you so much for the big things and the little things. And thank you that we get to look forward to that wonderful day when we will be in your presence and see the Lamb who was slain and see the one who was on the throne and see the four spirits of the Holy Spirit. And we will get to worship you unreservedly and unashamed because you are worthy of it all because only you can take the seal and usher in the plan of redemption. We just thank you for it. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.